Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Now in this episode, you'll hear two interviews, which I hope will help you understand the importance of the nation made up of more than 7,000 islands and the adjoining body of water known by its government as the West Philippine Sea. The rest of the world refers to it as the South China Sea, but that's just a taste of how things get very complicated in this part of the world. It's one of the most strategically crucial stretches of ocean, making the Philippines one of the most strategically important countries for both the US and China in the region. Just three weeks ago, China announced a ban on all fishing in the waters west of the Philippines and east of Vietnam, a stretch of water about 500 kilometers wide in order to stop the depletion of fish stocks by overfishing. This is something that the Philippines, Brunei, Malaysia and Vietnam all vigorously oppose on behalf of their fishing fleets. And then one week later, the Filipino people delivered a most historic election result, creating what looks like an authoritarian dynasty like no other. In this episode, you'll hear from a veteran Filipino political analyst on what this next-generation Marcos-Duterte partnership means for the US and China. And you'll hear from one of the world's preeminent experts on fishing fleets around the world. He's got a wealth of knowledge of the numerous nations all wanting to exploit the vast resources of the South China Sea, and he's got some deep insights of the nexus of geopolitics, climate change, and the South China Sea. So let's set sail. Now, if you were born and raised after the 1980s and outside the Philippines, then perhaps the name Marcos doesn't resonate with you. But the landslide election victory of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., known more commonly as Bong Bong, sent all sorts of shockwaves around the world. His father, Ferdinand Marcos Sr., ruled the Philippines first as president, then as dictator for 21 years up until the year 1986, crushing civil liberties, arresting any opposition leaders, cracking down on press freedom, and all the while embezzling an estimated 5 to 10 billion US dollars from the Philippine Central Bank. But here we are in the year 2022, and Ferdinand Marcos Jr. didn't just win the election. It was a landslide victory with more participation from Filipino voters than any other election in history, despite the restrictions of the ongoing pandemic. Adding to this is what could only be described as the formation of an unrivaled political dynasty, with the separate election of Sara Duterte, the daughter of the former president, Rodrigo Duterte, as vice president. To make sense of this and to figure out what happens next, I've called in Lucio Blanco Pitlo III to share his analysis of the new Marcos Duterte power partnership in charge of the Philippines. Lucio is a foreign affairs and security analyst focused on the Asia Pacific. 
He's a research fellow at the Asia-Pacific Pathways to Progress Foundation, and he's a regular contributor of analysis and opinion pieces on scmp.com. Lucio, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Can I just start by asking you to contrast the style and substance of Bong Bong Marcos compared to his predecessor? You know, for many of us around the world, we became somewhat accustomed to Rodrigo Duterte's off-the-cuff remarks, his shock foreign policy decisions. How is Marcos Jr. different? Well, uh, I think there will be, uh, policy-wise, there will be some sense of continuity. But uh, in terms of the optics and the rhetoric, I think uh, it will be like a sea change. I expect less bluster, less bombast, less theatrics, and less bad optics. So um, for many in the West, if that in itself is already a major improvement, then I I think uh, we're we're up for it. So over the past few years, we've seen China pouring billions into the Philippines for everything from casinos to railways to vaccines, the fight against Islamic terror. How do you see Ferdinand Marcos Jr. developing this economic relationship with China or indeed navigating it? I expect that Marcos Jr. would uh, enhance uh, and expand cooperation with China on the economic space. So everything from market access, uh, especially for Philippine agricultural exports to huge Chinese market, and in terms of uh, capital for infrastructure and other uh, sectors like manufacturing, uh, semiconductors, and uh, of course, uh, tourism, uh, hopefully after the lockdowns in the east of travel. So I think in terms of trade, in terms of infrastructure, in aid, and also in terms of tourism. I think these are areas that uh, Marcus Jr. would want to expand space to, to discuss with his Chinese counterpart. Can I refer you to one of your recently published analysis pieces? You say Ferdinand Marcos Jr.'s policy towards the South China Sea will be guided, one, by the legacy of his father, the late strongman Ferdinand Sr., two, the appeal of his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte's policy, and three, the emergence of the South China Sea as a hotspot for great power contest. Can I start with the legacy of Marcus Sr.? He was the one who first staked the Philippines' claim on the Spratly Islands. We've subsequently seen China pour billions of dollars into developing many of those islands into military bases. How do you see this new Marcos government approaching this issue? Well, as I argued in that piece, uh, the South China Sea, or uh, recently what we call the West Philippine Sea uh, in the Philippines, is personal uh, to the father as it is uh, to the son. So uh, I expect that Marcos Jr., which he reiterated in uh, interviews and debates uh, that he took part of during the campaign, he said that uh, he would also be strong in terms of defending Philippine interests and position in that maritime flashpoint. So I expect that he would continue efforts by his father. You know, the Philippines was a pioneer in building uh, infrastructure to assert our claim in that contested reefs and and waters, uh, building an airstrip there, sending troops and occupying uh, islands, which to this day uh, is being administered by the Philippines as part of this Kalayan town, the smallest town in the Philippines, part of the province of Palawan, which is the nearest landmass to the uh, to that South China Sea. So I think that he would continue upgrading the uh, facilities in the Kalayan Islands, as well as uh, 
stepping up patrols, maritime patrols in the area to ensure protection of Filipino fishermen operating in the area. And uh, of course, continue investing in modernizing Philippine Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard to ensure that uh, Philippine maritime interests in this area will be safeguarded considering the increasing number of activities being taken by China, as well as other claimants in this maritime space. We could do a whole episode just about that contested stretch of water to the west of the Philippines, Lucio. But in terms of the South China Sea, just one week before the Philippines election, Beijing announced, as it always does around this time of year, bans on fishing in waters near the Philippines within the controversial Nine Dash Lion claims. And of course, last year, we witnessed more than 200 Chinese fishing vessels anchoring on the reef just west of Palawan. What's your forecast on how Marcos is going to balance Filipino patriotism with the real politic of Chinese fishing fleets? Yeah, so this uh, Chinese uh, annual fishing ban in the South China Sea is a perennial irritant in the relations of Beijing and its neighboring Southeast Asian coastal states, uh, notably claimants in the South China Sea, uh, especially the Philippines and Vietnam. I think that negotiations towards a joint or coordinated fishing ban makes a lot of sense. And I think Marcos will be up for it uh, if ever Beijing uh, or even Hanoi will uh, sit down and, and, and discuss so that no country would be able to use the environmental card to you know, project their sovereignty or exercise of sovereign rights in this contested space. Uh, otherwise, uh, Chinese unilateral measures like this, you know, the fishing ban, uh, which is always detested by fishermen and governments for uh, Southeast Asian claimant states, uh, and also the gray zone tactics employed, notably the use of maritime militias, uh, which some, you know, of course, provide some kind of deniability. So I think the persistence of this unilateral measures by China, the absence of a, you know, a sincere, you know, way to find a, a workable solution whereby all fishermen will be able to fish there certain times of the year, and no one of them will be able to fish during the closed season. Absent those things, I think the um, coastal states of Southeast Asia, the Philippines including, will, uh, of course, deepen its cooperation with other partners to boost its maritime security capabilities. And this is where Japan and the United States can come into the picture. And, of course, maritime security uh, cooperation, including the uh, efforts to combat illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing, we all know they figured out in the recent U.S.-ASEAN summit hosted by Washington. Washington had also said that it's willing to provide uh, support to coast guards uh, of uh, littoral states. So I think that provides a space for cooperation between the Philippines and, and the U.S., I'm fascinated you mentioned that because we spoke about that last week on this podcast, this ASEAN conference. And you know, in the broader picture, I know basketball is pretty big in the Philippines as it is in the US. We've seen the US giving a full court press of diplomacy uh, across Southeast Asia these, these last months. The US economic investment in the Philippines is dwarfed by China. But mm-hmm. is this where the US will... You know, wedge 
China in terms of providing Coast Guard support and support for fishing disputes and, and territorial disputes? Well, I think that's one opportunity uh, that U.S. can can probe into uh, developing cooperation with the Philippines in terms of helping it modernize, you know, its uh, maritime capacity. As I said, uh, defense modernization will continue under uh, the Marcos administration. I think there's a lot of support for it publicly. And of course, the security sector is an important uh, constituency that that you have to uh, keep uh, by your side. And of course, they, they wanted to uh, continue developing uh, capabilities to deter uh, incursions by uh, by China and also other claimants uh, in this contested waters. So I think that provides a lot of space for um, the U.S. and the Philippines to work. Uh, I would add cybersecurity also uh, as a space for cooperation between the two countries. Of course, uh, Marcos, in several of his uh, interviews during the campaign, mentioned that he would continue to build, build, build legacy of his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, but uh, would also look with emphasis on digital connectivity. And of course, we know that the U.S. in recent years, working with Singapore, working with uh, other regional countries for digital uh, economy partnership agreements. Uh, Although this is is a step below a free trade agreement like RCEP to which China, the rest of ASEAN, including the Philippines, is on board, I think this uh, is an opportunity to show that U.S. engagement in the region goes beyond military insecurity, and that uh, it's trying to grow that economic muscle, uh, which I think is very important if you want to compete across the board with China. And so digital uh, economy is, we all know it's growing. Uh, the pandemic in the last two years, given a tremendous boost, you know, to digital mobile commerce, you know, Chinese companies like Alibaba have been uh, entering the Southeast Asian market. It's a huge market, very young demography there's a lot of potentials for growth. So I think developing the IT infrastructure, the internet connectivity, communications, all of this will create a lot of opportunities, not only for China, for the US, but also for others. And securing this infrastructure, this vital infrastructure, is of course very important also. And this is where US capabilities in cybersecurity and US role in shaping, updating, and defending cyber norms will play an important part, especially as China continues to make inroads, you know, in this uh, uh, technology space. So I I think uh, the Philippines, like the rest of Southeast Asia, will look forward to the specifics of the Indo-Pacific economic framework, especially if it will have a chapter there that will talk about technology and how U.S. will try to position itself in this field of emerging field of competition. Uh, between U.S. and China. Lucio, last week we heard from my colleague uh, Kim Bowen about how South Korea has just signed up to a NATO cyber defense lab. Is there any suggestion that might happen under the new Marcos government? Well, I, I think it's within the realm of possibilities. You know, uh, ROK and of course the Philippines are longtime allies of the U.S., part of the hub and spoke system in the Pacific. So I think that idea may be broached whether the Marcos administration will uh, take it uh, is another thing. Marcos, uh, in his uh, speeches during the campaign, said that he would be open to to engage with all partners. And uh, as he said, the devil is in the details. We'll be looking at the specifics of uh, arrangements, whether uh, it's uh, 
from the U.S. on a bilateral basis or in the form of this uh, growing minilateral uh, like the Quad or the, the AUKUS or even an Asian NATO. But, but that said, I think uh, Marcos also made it clear he would avoid engaging the U.S. in disputes with China on the South China Sea. And I think he would also factor Chinese security concerns uh, in military engagement with the U.S. and also avoid engaging in overly securitized uh, arrangements. So if, if Quad or the AUKUS would grow uh, their non-military dimensions, you know, whether it's the Quad vaccine partnership, whether it's, whether it's the technology uh, that I mentioned earlier, whether it's greater market access. So I think all of this uh, is something that uh, would help complement the already existing robust and enduring uh, defense cooperation between the Philippines and U.S. So I think on the issue of the cyber lab, cyber defense lab, if it would help the Philippines shore up its capacity for cyber defense, you know, this is a new field. We would open our doors. We would be more than happy to welcome support from longtime partners to develop, you know, our capability to protect, you know, this uh, the e-commerce and also protect our sensitive communications, you know, and if that would help enhance the alliance, you know, uh, between the Philippines and the U.S. and improve, contribute to the uh, improvement of our national defense and resilience, then I, I, I think uh, it's something that the next government may possibly look into. You've described a very complicated, dare I say, dance with two partners that new President Marcos has. He has said there'll be no militarization or bringing in the U.S. into disputes with China and the South China Sea while pursuing defense agreements, of course, with a massive economic relationship. Going back to Rodrigo Duterte and his legacy, perhaps the biggest geopolitical turning point in his presidency was back in 2016 when he first cancelled the U.S.-Philippine military agreement, allowing U.S. forces to be, to be based there. He then reinstated it, of course. It looked like he was playing the U.S. off against China. Is there any suggestion that legacy will be followed by Bong Bong Marcos, that he will kind of do the same? I, I think uh, as the competition between great powers intensify, I think that behavior uh, we will see more in the region. And uh, what Duterte did back then uh, is no outlier. So I think uh, countries in the region will uh, try to assert their autonomy, uh, double down on their agency as the titans clash. So I think they will try to play off one against the other. So if you look at the, the tiny Pacific country of the Solomon Islands, you know, they're trying to also play off Australia, China, um, China, U.S. So I, I think this would be a behavior that we would see going forward, you know, as countries in the region realizing, you know, their smallness, for lack of a better term, against, you know, this this superpowers, you know with differences across the board. So they don't want to get squeezed uh, in between. So they'll try to balance relations, you know, walk the tightrope, that fine line, not to be seen as overtly leaning two to one. Otherwise, you will lose the, the, the courtship of the other side. So I think that balancing act will also be attempted. And hopefully, Marcos Jr. will also be successful in terms of uh, sustaining 
that uh, the balancing uh, role. I think the people in India call that strategic ambiguity. Lucio Blanco, Pitlow III, thank you so much for your time. It's been very educational and informative. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Jared, and more power to your podcast. Professor Rashid Sumaila is a professor of ocean and fisheries economics at the University of British Columbia. He's a globally recognised expert who's researched and published on deep fisheries all around the world. And he's done a lot of work on the fishing fleets competing in the South China Sea and the multiple stakeholders involved. I've got him on the line because of the announcement from China of a three-month ban on a particular section of the South China Sea that is technically known as above the 12th parallel line of latitude, but is more easily described to you as the area of ocean that sits between Vietnam and the Philippines. And you'll be unsurprised to know both Vietnamese and Filipino fishermen are unhappy about this and what they call their traditional fishing areas. Professor Rashid Samaila, thank you so much for speaking with me. Can I begin with the fishing bans announced by China on this section of the South China Sea? Is this a regular occurrence? What's your knowledge of of these kinds of bans? Yeah, you know, this this is a seasonal ban because it's in the summer. And China has been doing it for some time in the South China Sea, I think since 1999. And and countries do use that, right? You have seasonal bans when we know the spawning of some salmon, for example, in a place, the government will put a a ban to allow that to happen. So so this is part of the management system we have developed over time. Well, yes, indeed. Well, let me follow that up. You are a global expert in this field, Professor. Is there a proven effect these bans regenerate fisheries? If done well, if you locate the season properly and, and it is managed well and controlled well, yes, the conservancy's buffer to declines, yes. So that's why it's yes. They just have to be done properly, like everything, right? If you just say there's a ban and it's not being followed up, then it's not going to help. So. So as you say, this has been happening since 1999. What kind of impact does this have on the neighbouring nations in terms of yeah. their food supply? Yeah, this is really, I think, the thing that differentiates China's bans in the South China Sea and the others, right? Usually a country will ban within their waters. Or, or if they are working collaboratively, you know, when you have a stock that is shared between nations, they work together, Canada, US, or Norway, even Russia, or Namibia, South Africa, and, and Angola, they work together and they decide together close there. So that is the, the big difference here because China is doing it in an area which has a lot of boundary disputes. So this complicates the issue big time. I mean, uh, I would have been much, much happier with this move if this was done collaboratively with neighbors and they all make their calculations and decide this is the best thing for us to do. That would be beautiful, but that's not the situation here. An understatement of the year is that the South China Sea politics is complicated. I noticed the area China has announced the ban on is within the disputed nine-dash line that China yeah. sought to impose on the region. You've got yeah. Vietnam on one side, the Philippines on the other. Is this where we see yeah. geopolitical interests meshing with ecological and environmental concerns? 
Oh, yes, I think I, I can just agree with you there, right? Because then the question is, is this the usual seasonal bans or closures, you know? Or is it the politics that is also driving this? And, and I've doubled into this. I, there was one comment I gave. I said, look here, I, I think fisheries are underlying part of the political problems because there are disputes there. And so if you are a big, strong nation like China, this may be a vehicle for you, right? So I think the politics is playing into this one. It's not just pure conservation here. Well, I guess there's the politics, the dispute. We've seen an initial protest lodged by Vietnam, but nothing from the Philippines. Do you Mm. think that's odd, considering it was the Philippines who took China to court over the Nine Dash Line in 2016 and had it declared to have no legal basis? Yeah, that, that that is a big change, you know, because historically... The Philippines is one of those who always uh, fights back and argues and goes to court and so on. But this year, suddenly they're quiet. And, uh, why so? Why so? I don't have any deep answer to that. But I know that there's elections taking place, right? And and who knows the games that the parties are playing. But it's odd. It's surprising because they have traditionally opposed this kind of unilateral ban. That's fascinating, Professor. And also... We've seen reports over the years about what's referred to China's fishing boat militias, how they operate, and the conflicts and confrontations they've had. Can you give us an idea about the size of China's fishing fleets in that region and how big they are? Yeah, you know, China is by far the largest fishing nation and how you look at it in terms of the catch, the proportion of the total catch it takes. Even in terms of agriculture, 60% is China. So when it comes to fisheries and the ocean, China is big. When it comes to distant water fishing fleets, there's data. Our group, we did an early, earlier paper where we estimated it's certainly over 2,000 different vessels that operate around the world. So that is large in terms of distant water fishing. Yes, China is mighty here. And so it has a lot of influence, you know. In general, China is considered as a developing country. But frankly speaking, when it comes to fisheries, it's hard for me to see China as a developing country. It's too big, too sophisticated, lots of money and vessels to go around and and fish all over the world. Might you describe China as a fishing superpower? Yeah, yeah, that's what it means, exactly. Fishing superpower, indeed, yeah. And just on your research on the fisheries, the health of the fisheries, there's been a lot of discussion about climate change, how they've affected ecosystems. What's your forecast for the kind of catch or catches that might be going on, the kinds of tensions that might arise as different nations struggle to bring in their own catch? Oh, my God. I mean, that is really a scary thing for me when I when I look at the data and do the research. You know, there are trifactor that is really hitting the ocean. One is the overfishing. That's a long, long traditional thing. The FAO, which is a conservative organization, estimates that a third of, a one third of the global fish stocks are in trouble. That's the FAO. And there was a recent report by the Mindaroo Foundation of Australia where their estimate is that half of the world's stocks are in trouble. So this is from the overfishing side. Now you bring in climate change. Oh my gosh, you bring the 
ocean warming, fish are moving towards the poles and, the, and in the, in, around the equator where a lot of people are, need the fish, they are going to lose their fish. And then you think of the Arctic as the fish is approaching, they are going into more acidic water because the Arctic is actually acidified more than many other places. So then you have ocean deoxygenation because if the water is getting warmer, naturally oxygen escapes, right? And other processes. So, so all these things come together and it's getting less and less fish in the ocean. And that can lead to conflicts. That has led to conflicts. We know that. And then you connect that with the subsidies that big nations like China gives to their fishing fleet to go around the world. As you know, the WTO is currently negotiating, right? Trying to take away harmful subsidies. And for big nations like China, Spain, they subsidize their fleets and they, then they can go to Africa, Latin America, and parts of developing Asia to fish there and deprive the, the people of their fish and nutrition. So it's really a, a messy situation where ecology, economics, and social aspects all are crashing in and making our life more complicated. Professor, what's your forecast this year for, as you say, the need for nations to negotiate around the fisheries of the South China Sea? What can you see ahead in the future from your perspective of how disputes may arise or be resolved? I would love to talk about the resolution of conflicts because really we need to do this more finer way to make this happen for us to have a world where its population, humanity is living in harmony with itself and different groups and also with nature because we need this. Otherwise, we're just digging our own grave. So, so when I look at the South China Sea, prediction is difficult because it's really complicated. My, my hope is that they could come to a determination somehow, like Soviet Union and Norway did years ago, even during the Cold War, they realized that the fish is so important for both nations, their coastal communities. So even though the big political fights were taking place, they met each year to kind of organize their fishing. So how can that happen in the South China Sea? For this to really happen, I think the big nation, China, will have to assume leadership. Because if you are the strongest person there, if you don't, pull back and try to pull the other smaller nations together. It's nothing is going to happen, right? So I think the honors lies on China, really, given its power, superpower nature, to really say, look, this is about our region. We share these waters. It's very important for our people. We need to really pull back our own me, 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 and try to work together with everybody. That is the pathway I see. And I hope that will come true because otherwise the consequences are quite devastating. The South China Sea, I think, is the third largest fishing ground in the world. Millions of people depend on this for jobs, for incomes, for food, food security. So if this is destroyed, it will be a huge catastrophe. Professor, I am sure you've been asked for doomsday scenarios more than once before, but what is your forecast for the fisheries of the South China Sea if they cannot find a resolution to these disputes and the issue of overfishing? 
Yeah, then we just go down the down the train. This is what it means. Because you end up with what we say in game theory, with those of us who apply game theory to fisheries, you end up in a prisoner's dilemma, right? I mean, China flexes its models, the smaller countries do what they can do. And this is the thing about big, powerful nations that through history, they should have learned that. That because you're big and powerful doesn't mean that you can always win these fights, you know. The smaller ones have their nimble ways of working their way through, right? So I think it's, it's better to just come together. And if they don't, China and all will be losers. They will end up in the prisoner's dilemma solution, which will be terrible for the region and the world because it's a very big, important region of the world too. Professor, I've never heard anyone bring game theory to the fisheries of South China Sea. It's been very educational talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot. That's all for this special episode of the China Geopolitics Podcast. Don't forget you can read the ongoing analysis from Lucio Blanco Pitlow III and all our team on the Asia Desk at scmp.com. And don't forget our world-renowned infographics and multimedia team have also put together some excellent interactives to explain the ongoing geopolitical and environmental tussle over the South China Sea. My name is Jared Watt. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.